Fundamentally, it was about two things. If you were going to distill it down, it's fundamentally about two things. First, and this sounds simple, but of course it wasn't, which is the restoration of the Union, bringing the seceded Confederate states back into the Union. What would that look like? How would you do it? And then the second part, arguably more significant, is the definition of freedom for roughly four million enslaved people. What's that going to look like? Welcome to Primary Sources, a podcast produced by East Tennessee State University that highlights the important research happening at ETSU. Joining us today on Primary Sources is Dr. Steve Nash. He is a professor of history here at ETSU and a scholar of the American Civil War and Reconstruction. He is also an award-winning writer. His 2016 book, Reconstruction's Ragged Edge, The Politics of Post-War Life in the Southern Mountains, has won awards and garnered positive reviews. Dr. Nash received his undergraduate degree at Penn State University and his master's degree from just over the mountain at Western Carolina University. In 2009, he earned a PhD in history from the University of Georgia. At Georgia, Dr. Nash studied under Dr. John Insko, one of the leading authorities of the Civil War era in Southern Appalachia. Dr. Nash has been teaching at ETSU ever since, arriving here in Johnson City in 2009. Dr. Nash, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So many people, as you know, have a deep interest in 19th century history, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. Tell us a little bit about what grabbed your attention, what drew you in, and what inspired you to become a professional historian. Yeah, it, it's, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a straight line for me. In, in some ways it was, but field-wise it wasn't. The short answer, the short answer to your question is teachers. Teachers drew me in. Um, when I was young, I, I liked history. I was good at it, and I had really good teachers, and that made it more interesting. So through high school, I really enjoyed my history classes, thought that I wanted to teach high school. In fact, that was my career ambition, was to be a high school history teacher. And then I went off to Penn State and took a couple education classes and started to realize some of the bureaucratic elements of public school teaching and looked at some of my professors and said, you know what, that looks like a pretty good gig. I think I'll go do that. So still teaching history, still doing history, but then also realizing the research side of it and seeing what my professors at Penn State were doing and thinking, okay, well, you know, being able to go and sort of figure out what people were thinking and why they did what they did and, you know, writing and publishing and contributing to our knowledge base, uh, that's really what pulled me in. So the Civil War ended more than 150 years ago. But interest remains deep for many Americans, especially right here in the Appalachian Highlands. Why do you think the Civil War era continues to be such an engaging topic? Drama. Uh, people like drama. Uh, the Civil War is full of good stories, uh, particularly in Appalachia, the longstanding notion of a war of brother versus brother, or divided communities, uh, that sort of element of personal relationship. And I, I used to work at a Civil War battlefield park during the summer. I would encounter people who were tracing ancestors' movements and the sort of importance that those stories had for them. So I think for a lot of people, it resonates on a familial level. On a drama standpoint, you have some of the most sort of colorful personalities in American history during the Civil War period. It hit 
people's homes and lives in a really unprecedented way. More than 700,000 people killed, a lot of them in the South. You know, they refer to the sort of Confederate as the lost generation. So when you figure that the Confederacy had a mobilization rate of white military-aged men of about 80%, you think about how that translates into people's homes. I mean, it really reached into every community, every household in the country, particularly in, in the Confederate states. And I, I think the other part of it, too, as you sort of project forward, is it's been called the Second American Revolution. And, it, and if you think about it, a lot of the major issues of the American Revolution, a lot of the founding ideas, uh, constitutional or otherwise, that we still wrestle with, or if you look at the founding creed in the Declaration of Independence, that all are created equal and have certain inalienable rights, the Civil War is another major step towards realization of that. So I think to this day, it resonates on a personal level. I think it resonates on a sort of storytelling level, and it resonates in a sense of our national purpose. As a historian, I suspect you would agree that while many Americans are familiar with the Civil War, they are perhaps less acquainted with Reconstruction. Before we discuss your book, talk about what Reconstruction is and why it's important to study it today. It's true. A lot of people don't really know much about Reconstruction. And, and it's one of those things, and I know you know this, and I, I have a, my master's advisor would cringe if he knew that I was about to drop this word in a public podcast, but <laughs> historiography, right? For those of you who are uninitiated, historiography is a fancy word for how historians have written about history. And for a long time, historians in the first part of the 19th, in the first part of the 1900s, first part of the 20th century, would refer to Reconstruction as a crime or a tragic era and something that was sort of put upon the defeated Confederate South. And that popular image that has never really faded, I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what Reconstruction was, or they look at it as a sort of, you know, tragic part of American history. And the reality is, is that Reconstruction's deeply, deeply important to American history. Fundamentally, it was about two things. If you were going to distill it down, it's fundamentally about two things. First, and this sounds simple, but of course it wasn't, which is the restoration of the Union, bringing the seceded Confederate states back into the Union. What would that look like? How would you do it? And then the second part, arguably more significant, is the definition of freedom for roughly 4 million enslaved people. What's that going to look like? What are they going to have equal rights before the law, equal citizenship? How is that going to be done? And I think that those are really sort of the two core elements. They sound simple when you talk about them, but they're really not. And if you think about it too, and I, I sort of thinking about this conversation that we're going to have, if you call them, if you call the American Civil War the Second American Revolution, one of the things that you always have to kind of remind students of in their intro classes is that the Constitution didn't happen immediately as part of the American Revolution. It comes later. It comes a couple of years later after the Articles of Confederation had failed. So if you called the Civil War the Second American Revolution, Reconstruction is that important work that comes after. Just like with the First American Revolution, it's that important work. First American Revolution, you have the Constitution. Second American Revolution, Civil War, you have Reconstruction, a definition of citizenship that includes all Native-born citizens, except Native Americans, sadly. 13, 
14th, 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution that are profoundly significant, that constitutional work, and the struggles over those meanings of freedom. Reconstruction, if the Civil War created these things, Reconstruction was the work of making sense of them and putting them into law and putting them into practice. And the legacy of that is still with us. So your book tracks the history of what unfolded after the Civil War in the nearby mountains of Western North Carolina. For those who have not read your book, discuss some of the main arguments that you make. I know you realize that this is a dangerous question, right? I'm going to ask a historian, oh, by the way, like, can you tell us about your book in like two minutes? You mentioned Dr. Insko. Somewhere Dr. Insko will be listening and saying, I told him he needs to know the five-minute version of this book. On a broad, on a broad level, it, it, it attacks this sort of notion of Appalachia as exceptional. And, and it's an argument for people who don't really know this idea that Appalachia is isolated and sort of disconnected from the rest of the South or the rest of the country. Uh, and that as such, it sort of develops these sort of singular, insular uh, characteristics. I, I hate that argument. Historians have largely dispelled it. I think on a broad level, my book attacks that in a sense that it says that Western North Carolina, the Appalachian section of North Carolina, was fundamentally central to the North Carolina Reconstruction experience. Issues of divided loyalties played out there in a profound way that shaped politics and helped to create a biracial um, Republican political coalition. Issues of emancipation, even though African Americans are far too often dismissed as not being uh, seen or heard in Appalachia, they were absolutely central to Reconstruction in Western North Carolina. In fact, the Republicans would not have been successful in Western North Carolina without African American political participation all while they were forming their own communities, developing schools, and defining freedom for themselves. And then the last part of that is sort of how it moves away from that. Even though you don't have the same sort of arguments that you would get out of plantation-centered districts of places like Mississippi of African-American political denomination that led to sort of reactionary, paramilitary, terroristic organizations like the Ku Klux Klan, that violence was also central and present in Western North Carolina. Uh, in fact, all of these issues that I just talked about in Western North Carolina also are the reason why a lot of the policymakers in North Carolina adopted the policies that they did because they were watching what was happening in the West and they were afraid that if they didn't do something, the federal government would. And that's my book in a nutshell. By the late 1870s, the Civil War was over, and most United States soldiers had left the South. What was going on in Western North Carolina at that time? Economic sort of resurgency or economic integration into a national marketplace. This is, you know, one of the sort of elements, again, the Mountain South was somehow sort of left behind. They very much were not. In North Carolina in 1871, the Republican governor is impeached for doing the right thing the wrong way in attempting to suppress and put down the Ku Klux Klan. And after that, in an effort to try to sort of peel back support for the Republican Party across the state, people in the West really sort of pushed for economic development. We might have this notion now of Asheville as a sort of major regional hub, but at the time, Asheville was smaller than Knoxville. 
And a lot of people who were doing shopping and stuff in Western North Carolina were coming to Jonesboro. Asheville really doesn't emerge as quote unquote Asheville as we think of it until 1880 when the railroad arrives and the Western North Carolina Railroad is completed to Asheville. So a lot of people started pushing this economic boosterism through the 1870s, very much tied to the railroad, which of course has a sort of corollary to the issue of African-American freedom with the rise of incarcerated labor of African-Americans who were put into state penitentiaries really on sentences that far exceeded the crime, even if they did the crime. Also that those men's labor could be used on public improvement projects like railroads. And in Western North Carolina, dozens died building the Swannanoa Tunnel so that the railroad could reach Asheville. And, and here's a sort of shout out to my colleague, Tom Lee in the history department. Another major part of this economic insert, sort of growth, I keep wanting to call it an insurgency, but economic growth was uh, tobacco. There was a big tobacco boom in Western North Carolina, as there was in East Tennessee at this time. Three counties in Western North Carolina, Buncombe, Mat Madison, and Haywood had huge tobacco booms. And the idea was is that the region's economic future was tied to tobacco. And if you wanted to get tobacco to market to places like Danville, Virginia, or to Central North Carolina, you needed the railroad. So those two things went hand in hand, and they really sort of helped to tie Western North Carolina to the rest of the state, and in many ways to the rest of the South economically. That is fascinating. Do you have any research you're working on now that you would like to share? Uh, I have three projects going right now, which is, as a historian or a scholar, this is kind of like the big mistake. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to do one project until you finish the others. So I actually have three, one of which is I am taking a central figure from my first book, a, a man by the name of Virgil Lusk who is a Confederate cavalry officer from Buncombe County, North Carolina, where Asheville is. And uh, he was a Confederate cavalry officer who, after the war, becomes a Republican and actually is put in a position where he is sort of leading the investigation into the statewide Ku Klux Klan and is leading the prosecution of Western North Carolina Ku Klux. So you have this figure who is actually going to live... 94 years. So he's going to die in 1928, I believe. But his papers are scattered. They're all over the place. And that makes Lusk kind of inaccessible to your readers and to scholars. So I've been working on pulling every scrap of paper that I can find that he wrote or was written about him or appeared in newspapers and pulling it all together into a single volume, which is currently under contract uh, with the University of Georgia Press. I have another project, which I've been working on with a colleague of mine over at Appalachian State named Bruce Stewart, where uh, we are building off of what I did in my first book, and we're actually writing inclusive history of all of North Carolina during Reconstruction, which for the people out there, that is a massive amount of material to try to go through, which is why he and I are doing it together. We are, I'd say, about two-thirds of the way through our research at this point. We hope to start writing that and have it out probably in about five years. And then the third one, and this is a, sort of a call upon the listeners, anybody who's listening to this, have a project ongoing that is kind of a career-defining ending project. I don't know. We'll see if it ever comes to be, which is emancipation throughout Southern Appalachia. 
and I want to look at the end of slavery and African-American community building throughout Southern Appalachia. And I've had this realization that if I want to do that right, I need to do it on a semi-genealogical basis. So if anybody's listening and you have family stories and uh, anecdotes that you wish to share with a historian, I would very much like to hear them. You can reach out to me by email or otherwise by my office phone. So to wrap up this episode, let's talk about what comes next for historians. The way scholars think and write about the Civil War era and history more generally has changed pretty dramatically over the last 150 years. For decades, scholars mostly wrote about well-known figures, sometimes called top-down history. That gave way in the 1960s to what some historians term bottom-up history or history from below. From your perspective, what is needed from historians now and in the future, and how should scholars in the years ahead study the past? I wish I could tell you exactly where I think everything is going. I mean, I can tell you what the trends are with history now. Is we're, Historians are very much looking on a sort of global or transnational context, particular uh, economic and capitalism studies regarding uh, major crops like cotton or tobacco and following supply chains and how those have changed societies as well as economies around the world. So... People are very interested in comparative global studies now. Environmental history, which is something I sort of dabble in, is another way of kind of getting into those sort of global comparative perspectives. But I, I, you know, I kind of do bottom up history with sort of a political bent. And I don't think we're done with that yet. I, I, I don't think that we've told all the stories that there are to tell. I think there are plenty of stories that haven't been told that still need to be told. So in terms of thinking what's needed from historians now and in the future, I think historians need to continue to bring more voices to the table. And this isn't just academic history. This is public history. This is historic sites. This is in classrooms. Bring multiple perspectives to the table. The sort of diversity of the American experience needs to be told in an inclusive and complete way. And, and to recognize, as sort of a friend of mine says, the aforementioned Bruce Stewart, we like to talk about what, is it, what it is that we do. And historians produce knowledge, right? The things that end up in your textbooks, the things that inform uh, journalistic, investigatory pieces, a lot of that stuff comes from historians. We understand where we are now and where we're going in the future through the work of historians. And I think scholars should, historians should continue to be aware of how we study the past and write these stories in an inclusive and complete way with an understanding that what we do matters to the present and will inform where we go in the future. Dr. Nash, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Primary Sources. Our theme music was created by students of Martin Walters, a member of ETSU's Department of Music. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with friends and colleagues.